We are going to open up Scripture now and sit under God's Word and open ourselves to God's Spirit that we, would, that we would see Jesus, the one for whom we are here and the one in whom we believed and desire to follow today. Amen? Amen. All right. A little cramped up here. I, if I fall, it's, it's going to be okay. Uh, I pace. I have to pace. It's just natural for me. Um, if you want to open up in your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning. Ephesians 5, and it is, uh, it's going to be a very uh, encouraging, helpful word for us. We're back in Ephesians, and remember, um, we, last week we dove back into this book of Ephesians. We're diving in at chapter 5, where we left off going into last summer, and we titled the series, The Geography of Heaven. The Geography of Heaven. Geography is tactile, earthy, it's real. Heaven, though, oftentimes in our church culture, in the Western world, in the 21st century, feels ethereal, distant, untouchable, less real. But what we see in Ephesians is the Apostle Paul unpacking the gospel, the transcendent reality that God, who is invisible, Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past, took on humanity in Jesus of Nazareth, so that heaven and earth could come together and become our lived reality. That anyone who would turn to Jesus and follow Him can follow Him in heaven on earth until one day He fully and finally materializes it for everyone. Amen? Now, the first four chapters, Paul's painting this beautiful picture. It's all highly... um, Uh, theological grandeur of the gospel, 10,000 feet, cosmic picture. And in Ephesians 5, he starts getting down into the ground level, into the weeds, and now we find ourselves in one of the most poignant places in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What I want for us to do is to take that big vision of the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the truth of Jesus And embrace that as we engage the weeds of everyday living. Because Jesus didn't come to help us escape from the everyday, but to live with God in the everyday. That means we need to be open to him speaking into our everyday life. Might it be that one of the problems we encounter in following Jesus, I talk to people all the time in our church, outside of our church, where Jesus doesn't feel like he's engaged in our everyday life. We don't experience the reality of God with us in our everyday kind of sense. Now, uh, acknowledge from the outset that it's, it's mystery uh, walking with our God who is invisible and moves among us by the Spirit. But what if that problem stems partially from overlooking, looking past the very areas that God wants to meet us in and lead us in, in that process of transformation. As though there's something out there that God wants to do, when, and we overlook what is most powerful near us, namely the relationships that make up most of our everyday life. In Ephesians 5, Paul is going to unpack eight fundamental relationships that are building blocks for many of us in our everyday life. Bosses, workers, children, parents, husbands, wives. Today, we're going to take the first week out of two 
to talk about marriage. Okay? How does the gospel, the reality of heaven on earth, following God, living the with God life, lead us in marriage? So, if you want to stand with me, we are going to read this passage. We stand out of reverence for God's word that our bodies would lead our souls into remembrance of what we hold and what we open up. Ephesians 5. I am actually going to start reading at verse 18, which you do not have, and then we will get to verse 22, where uh, your passage picks up. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now picking up in our text. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we want to open ourselves to you now. We need to listen for your voice. We desire to understand your word, that we could know how we can follow Jesus, how we can live the life that you intend and created and call us to, because we know that your word never lays burdens upon us, but sweeps us up into the grand drama of heaven coming to earth, of life with you. And so, Holy Spirit, please help us as we dive into a passage of Scripture that can feel so foreign to us. Uh, would you carry me along and anything that is of you allow to stick and, and be helpful to us as a people, anything that's not of you allow to just simply fall to the wayside. Please help us now. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you can take a seat. What's that? 
Oh yeah, if you could scoot just a little bit while you're sitting down, if there happen to be any seats in the middle, I don't see many, can you just make sure that you scoot in so that there are empty seats on the edges of these rows? That would be really helpful. Praise God, we're very full. Um, but that means we gotta, we got to make as much space as we can. Obviously, too, we, you notice the tank of water up here. Uh, that's not just for uh, anyone who wants to, to come up and chill. And we certainly aren't doing any like ritual washings uh, to approach God. But we're doing baptism today, which is exciting. Yes. So it takes up extra room. It'll all be good, though. Okay, back into our passage. We're going to be spending two weeks in this passage. As I was reading over and over again, preparing for today, there was something that I sensed was, was very needed. Do we need a key for that? Here, here, here. Yeah, I got it. I got it. There you go. Yeah, of course. All right. We had to, we had to start with something, I think, in order to properly approach this passage of Scripture. Because I'm not aloof to how this sounds with our modern ears. Some of you are like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds great. Others of you are like, what is this saying? Submission is like a curse word to us, right? Let's just, let's just call it what it is, okay? I couldn't help but sense that we need to spend a moment unpacking specific confusion that our culture forms us into as we approach this, okay? There will be a discussion table afterwards at lunch. We'll unpack a lot more than we can possibly get here. So if you have passionate questions, let's go talk during lunch, all right? We also have mentorship. There's uh, men and women that would love to process through some of these things with you in Scripture. So some of that confusion that we have bringing into Scripture this morning has come from good deconstruction about man-made traditions that have been infused with scriptural authority. So there are, there are traditions about husbands and wives that need to be peeled apart so that we would not think that tradition and culture is some kind of God-imbued design. So there are portraits of what husbands and wives look like that, that are just cultural. And those are okay. Those should be deconstructed, especially when we start to infuse them with scriptural authority. Um, I was a part of a church. I met Jesus into a church up in Seattle that said specifically, um, wives of pastors could not work outside of the home. I got to live, Kate and I did, in a, a church culture that infused tradition with scriptural authority. And we do not want to do that. We should deconstruct and peel those things apart. But what we can't do is deconstruct even good instruction and design from scripture that God has clearly communicated to us. The tricky part is discerning between the two. Okay? One simple principle that I want to put before us as we dive in over the next few weeks into this idea of human relationships, submission and authority and leadership and service. This one principle is we must be able to speak in generalizations without making absolute claims. We need to be able to speak in generalizations without getting derailed into the specifics of particular nuanced situations. Does that make sense? So, for instance, 
if I were to make the statement, men are taller than women. In a general sense, in a statistical sense, in an average sense, that would be true. But in a particular absolute sense, that would not be true. Some of you are taller than me. I happen to be a man and you would be a woman and that fact would not be true, right? Yes, yeah, okay, we're, we're tracking, good. Can we be so comfortable with, with general wisdom that we don't feel like we need the knee-jerk reaction to say, yeah, but that's not true in every instance, therefore we can't live by that. Because we live in such a charged moment, what actually begins to happen, if we have that knee-jerk reaction that can wisely, patiently, calmly unpack and pull apart the traditions that should be pulled apart, that in the end we have no wisdom left over to guide us. And so we say, what does it even mean to be a husband or a wife? That's no better off. And so what we need to be able to do is speak in generalizations, work it out in the midst of community, mentorship, wisdom, and understand what things will have particular nuance for us in our, our context. Yeah? Great. No stones need to be thrown today. <clears throat> okay, so generalizations, they were already thrown. Generalizations without making absolute claims. Today, uh, we're going to speak about the theology of marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about the practicals of marriage. What does this begin to really look like? Okay, husbands, wives. I'm still looking for a guest speaker for next week. So if any of you know someone who'd want to drive by, drop some wisdom off, and then leave, that'd be great. I kid, I kid. Today we're going to be up in the sky looking at God's design for marriage because so much of what we need to understand about in the weeds living in marriage comes from that big vision. So we're going to begin at the end of our text. Ephesians 5.32, Paul says... This mystery, that is the mystery of husbands and wives, is profound in marriage. But I am talking about, that is that mystery, what husbands and wives in marriage represent. I am talking about Christ and the church. This mystery is the mystery of husbands and wives in marriage for those for whom it will become a reality. Some of us will, will uh, be married, some of us are married, not all of us will. All of us, though, are swept up into the cosmic marriage, which is Christ in the church. And so whether or not you're married right now, or whether or not you ever will be married, this presents a picture of your reality, all of our reality with Jesus Christ. The husband is called to love his wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands and future husbands, here's your calling in marriage. Die for your wife as you follow Jesus together. Wives are called to receive and willingly 
follow, if we can even use the word here, we'll, we'll couch it and get a proper understanding in a moment, submit to the dying love and self-giving leadership of their husbands. So wives and future wives, here's your calling in marriage. Willingly follow the loving service of your husband. All right, let's pray. So, a note on calling. When we talk about calling, I just laid out simply these callings. Here's what we can't do, and here's what went so wrong about the church that I and my wife were up at in, in Seattle. Calling is not like painting with a single color, as though everything needs to be a, a, or, orange. Orange is the best color. Everyone knows this. It's my favorite color. Uh, orange would be, if you only had orange, you would be so limited in what you could convey. A lot of times we approach God's word as though it's giving us a singular color. So you could color amazing things like pumpkins, but you could not paint stuff like a vast ocean, right? It just would look funny. It wouldn't work. What God's calling upon us does is it does not give us a color and say, here's your only thing that you do, husbands. Here's the only thing you do, wives. It presents us with a particular uh, palette, a particular hue. So you know if you're, if you're into graphic design or you ever work on a computer, you can kind of drag the layering of the colors, the particular tone of your palette. God's calling is supposed to give us a tone, a hue, a posture for living with one another. So, let's convey it. Um, husbands laying your life down for your wife does not mean that you never get to do anything that you like. Because that would be you enjoying something. <laughs> Wives, following the lead of your husband's sacrificial service of you does not mean you are a doormat only ever doing whatever he wants to do. That would be like coloring with orange. Instead, it's supposed to paint, it's supposed to give us a palette to paint beauty that represents the gospel together with. Do you see the difference? So we can't approach these prescriptions from Paul, which are prescriptions. They are his command to husbands and wives, exemplifying the gospel but we can't hear them overly simplistic and as a caricature. So, what are these two cosmic ways that marriage isn't ultimately about you and I? Did you know that? The marriage is not about you and I. First, marriage isn't about us, but about revelation from God. Revelation is a word that simply means revealing. It's what happens when in the morning you open up your blinds and whoosh, you see what's behind them. The sunshine, you have revealed what is behind. Marriage opens up our vision to see something hidden but revealed behind our reality. There are many reasons why men and women desire marriage, but as much as we may desire marriage, it is not about us. If we make marriage about us, we will suffer because marriage was never meant to be about human beings. It's what happens to animals when we put them in the zoo. 
They weren't meant to be in the zoo. They actually developed something that's, that's on street level terms called zoocosis. It's why a lion paces back and forth, something that they just don't do in the wild. It's why animals just look sedentary, a little depressed. They weren't made for that environment. So too, marriage was not meant merely for something like our joy. Oh, I'd just be so happier if I were married and had a spouse. Joy is good, but joy is not the end goal of marriage. It's a fruit of healthy marriage. If we make our marriage about joy, we will either ruin our marriage by the pressure we put on one another to be perfect, or neglect the mutual calling of God-ordained purpose for marriage and just make it about us. The goal of marriage is to reflect a hidden reality in all of creation that is made visible in the gospel. That God, the creator, community and unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have a shared life and intention overflowing with self-giving love that is so joyous, that is so good, they cannot help but desire to create others to enjoy it with them. God created everything that exists, not because he was lonely or because God wanted something to affirm his fragile ego, but because God is so full of loving happiness that he wanted us to share in it too. So too, husbands and wives are intended through marriage to reflect two distinct persons who share in one singular life, whose love creates others to share that love and grow up in that love. That's why children come from the most intimate expression of love between husbands and wives. That's the revelation that was hardwired into creation. Now on this side of the gospel, husbands are called to live out the dying love of Jesus for their bride. So any hint of abuse on one hand or apathy towards their wife on the other hand is not just wrong and sinful, but profoundly spreading a lie about Jesus and the gospel. It's misrevelation. That Jesus is an abusive Lord or an absent lover. The love of husbands reflects Jesus' persistent love to his bride, the church, and it presents it to the world even as a husband's wife is broken and imperfect. So too we are broken and still being transformed for Jesus. Wives reflect the pattern of the church receiving the lavish love of Jesus reflected in their husbands and responding with mutual love and respect to his initiative and invitation. Just as Jesus doesn't force himself upon anyone, leadership and love and initiative of husbands invites the wife to receive willingly. So wives reflect the gospel not by following the initiative of a perfect husband, but by following a perfect Jesus who is over their fallen, sinful husband whom the, Jesus, the Spirit is transforming. So that's the, the revelation that marriage is about. But there's also wisdom 
that marriage is about. Um, I want to acknowledge the simple fact that the church in America, we can broaden it out to the West, especially over the last hundred years, has not done marriage well. Um, No fault divorce, all sorts of of terrible marriages that are basically uh, because we just don't want to submit ourselves to God and we think that Jesus has nothing to say about it. There are also very painful marriages in the brokenness of the world. And I'm not aloof to that either. Uh, my parents divorced when, uh, before I was, I was one. I lived in the midst of uh, the dynamic of parents who were separated. But we need to also see that the world doesn't know how to do marriage. We cannot simply say the church doesn't know what to do, so screw it. Just doing whatever I want to do. Right? We need to see with clear eyes the brokenness in the world and look to Scripture and see the Spirit actually cultivating uh, wisdom in His design. Okay. The uniting of male and female into one flesh union throughout human history across all people groups is not an evolutionary strategy, but a God-created gift. God told Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth and subdue it. That what is theologians call the creation mandate, is still in effect today. That's what modern technology is. We are seeking ways to cultivate the created order and subdue it, not to use it and exploit it, which some Christians believe God has just created us so that we can use up the earth for whatever we want. And yeah, global warming doesn't matter. It's not a thing because God's not going to come back until he wants to anyway, and he's going to make sure that it's all good. That's not it. To work, to, to, to uh, keep the garden and work it is the language that Genesis uses, and it's the same language that Scripture uses of the priests and the temple later on in the Old Testament. So if we don't think that the priests could walk into the temple and do whatever they wanted without God zapping them dead, we too ought to have a little bit of humility as we're cultivating the earth. So, husbands and wives come together as co-rulers of the earth, having dominion granted to them, but differing functions within that. You see this in the garden. They each have roles. Husbands bear initiating responsibility for following God together. That doesn't mean that they're the only ones who initiate anything. It just means that they bear the responsibility on their shoulders. You see this reflected in Genesis 1-3. through When God comes to Adam and gives him his commands, guess who's not there yet? Eve. Not yet created as best we can tell. So when God gives his commission and his prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's entrusting to Adam his command that Adam would bear the responsibility of following God together. Eve is created, and God says, I want to create a helpmate, an azer, for Adam in this mission. We hear the word helper and think it's derogatory. But guess who that word is used for most in the Old Testament? God. So, God is the one who says, I am your helper and your shield. Jesus says, I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, implying he himself was 
the helper of the disciples. Um, and it also doesn't mean that husbands don't help their wives. Like, let's, let's ease up a little bit. Generalizations are not absolutes. Okay? So, to be honest, I feel like simply laying out the wisdom of how God has revealed design within marriage for husbands and wives, for the sake of the world, for the sake of families, for the sake of the church, there are all sorts of exclusions. Like, well, what about that rush to the front of our minds. Again, discussion table, if you're really that desperate, okay? But for now, the terms headship and helper are here in Scripture to guide us into that hue of the palette we get to paint with. In Ephesians 5, Verses 25 through 30, we see what God says for husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Any kind of leadership, initiative, authority, and headship that doesn't look like that in some way, shape, or form is not the intention of God. So husbands, or future husbands, young men, whatever you might be, if you desire to be a husband for anything other than that at the very core, you probably don't actually desire a wife. You desire someone to satisfy yourself in whatever way that might mean. Because that's what a husband is for. That's the calling that God places upon husbands. And so I want to challenge you and challenge myself to say, what is it that we actually desire in approaching something like marriage? Is it to the dignity and the glory of laying your life down for one person in particular in all of their brokenness and sin and flaws? That's what being a husband is. That's why we need community and we need examples in real life. So we have mentorship for you men. Get into mentorship. Get under married men who can tell you all about their failings and all about what they have learned. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, Paul addresses wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. These would have been shocking words in the first century. 
but not for the reasons that you and I are shocked by them. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, husbands were assumed to have authority over their households. It was not a shocking thing to say, uh, husband, actually, you can do whatever you want with your household, and the government would back you. What's shocking is the reasoning behind what Paul uses the word submission for. That you are one flesh together. And just as the church submits herself to Jesus, so you are called to submit yourself under, to have a submission underneath your husband. What, what does that sound like to us? Our modern ears hear submission and think slavery. We think suppression of desire rather than freedom for desire. It's not intended to be that. It's intended to represent a beautiful trust in God. So what submission is not? Um, Jackie Hill Perry, a really helpful voice in the midst of this area, marriage, says six things that submission is not. Submission is not agreeing on everything with your husband. Submission does not mean loving, leaving your brain at the altar. God is not calling you to be stupid. Those are her words, not mine. <laughs> Submission does not mean you do not influence your husband or try to influence. Submission, fourthly, does, is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. You don't submit to a husband in ways that are sin. We'll get to that in a moment. Fifth, submission does not mean you get your spiritual strength from your husband. If there's anything that I see in the church sometimes, is that wives can sometimes view submission to a husband as the primary person that they receive spiritual strength from. That's not what this is saying. It's still Christ and the Spirit for whom a wife gets strength from God to fulfill her calling. Sixthly, submission is not done out of fear. It's not a fearful help, give me a protector in this life who can be embodied in a husband. It's trusting God, Jackie Hill Perry says, um, in our submission with courage. So that's what it's not. Let's zoom out even beyond marriage, though, as we wrap up to say, what, what is submission? Because here's the thing. In verse 21, the reason that I started in verse 18 is because there's context that all of this is spoken into. You notice that Paul is giving this vision for life together in our relationships, cosmic gospel, heaven and earth coming together. And so he says, this is what you ought to do. Sing songs, be be encouraged, be thankful to the Lord in everything. Submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. That frames all of his commands that follow about particular relationships and service and submission. Here's the thing. All of us are submitted to someone. Everyone. In this case, Husbands and wives are both submitted to someone higher than themselves. All healthy human relationships are under the structure of authority for the sake of flourishing. 
as people created in the image of God, we all have a part of us that desires submission to someone that has our absolute best at heart. Like if I could bring someone, a boss, let's say there's a, there's a boss. What's your ideal dream boss? Okay. Or if you're in grad school or you're an undergrad, what's your ideal professor or mentor? Someone who has you in mind, your best, your future, the possibilities, serves you in your weaknesses, is there when life kind of comes crumbling in on you to help you and strengthen you? It would not be hard for you to be a part of a cohort or a workplace where you knew beyond anything that the person you followed in authority over you had your absolute best to love you at your worst, right? But the problem is we know that that's, that's not the reality, that there is brokenness in the midst of this. Probably the most helpful thing that I read in the midst of this week and that I have read is by a theologian and author named Wendy Alsup. She spent a lot of time at the church that my wife and I were at up in Seattle. And so she got to experience firsthand much of the brokenness surrounding marriage, husbands, wives, pastoral church authority. She's thought deeply about the truth of submission and authority and leadership. And she's written something very profound and very wise, I think, that I want to end with. If we have the theology of God's design, when we start to get into that middle ground between how we deal with human authority in, in the world as given by God, how do we do this? This is going to take a couple minutes for me to read, but as I was trying to trim it down, I didn't feel like I could and do it justice. Okay, And then we're going to wrap up. This is what Wendy Alsop says. Everyone submits to someone. Note that everyone doesn't submit to everyone which gets into an egalitarian understanding and application of submission. But everyone does submit to someone, and everyone submits to someone on earth. Even Jesus, the perfect Savior and now our King, submitted not just to his Father in heaven, but also to his parents on earth. Luke 2.51. Instead of mutual submission, as is often called, I call this global submission. The line of submission to authority is not actually a line. This is a core thought, okay? Jesus circled around and submitted to his parents even while he was becoming king of the universe. God's authority structure is more like a complicated Venn diagram than a straight line from general to lieutenant to soldier in the field. As someone who values submission, I now understand how missing these principles sets us up for failure. Consider the particular example of submission to parents. We can look at parents and children and extrapolate for other relationships involving the word in Greek, hupotasso, for submission. Jesus' submission to his parents is telling. If Jesus had to submit to his parents, we should be cautious around any leader who makes an argument for dismissing his own or her own parents. Jesus was greater than his parents, more righteous than his parents, and wiser than his parents. And he was subject to his parents. There are all kinds of thought-provoking issues here. Now, every parent who also is submitted to Scripture knows that parental authority changes when children become adults. 
How would you like it if mom or dad walked into your room in your particular household and bossed you around? Yeah. Every parent, oh, uh, we see this in Jesus' life as well. There, yet there is no expiration date on the command to honor our parents. Again, Jesus' example reinforces this. But when does submission to parents break down? For Jesus, it broke down when his parents didn't understand properly the authority, God, that they and Jesus were both under. If it was a choice between doing what his parents expected and being about the work of his ultimate authority, God the Father, Jesus did what the ultimate authority asked. However, immediately after this moment in Luke 2:49 of discrepancy between his earthly authorities and his heavenly one, Jesus stepped right back under and into the authority of his parents. Submission breaks down most clearly when immediate authorities aren't submitted to any authority themselves. This is where we really fear and feel the situations where abuse and submission come into play. So listen, all right? Submission breaks down like I said, when authorities aren't submitted to anyone themselves. In terms of hupotasso, the word for submission, the implication of the word is a linking of authorities. Not always a straight line, but one entity deriving authority from another. A parent's authority breaks down when they break the law. Parents' authority breaks down when they won't submit to their own church authorities. Parents' authority breaks down when they won't submit to the word of God. Parents' authority breaks down when they won't honor, don't honor their parents. We need to understand why authority and submission break down. And then we need to understand what to do in response. In the case of a parent who breaks the law with their children, we usually agree that the parents have lost authority over their child. That's why foster system in L.A. are one reason why foster system can be very full. There are a lot of other very bad reasons why the foster system is full but we would say it's right for the state to take away children from abusive parents. Authorities rightly stand in place of the parents in these cases. Extrapolate these principles to pastoral authority, family authority, work authority, or government authority. In any scenario, submission breaks down when an authority demands submission that they do not practice themselves. When an authority demands submission to themselves, but autonomy for themselves. Scripture gives us sober warnings about our global desire for our autonomy, though, and its ugly outworkings. So she's shifting and saying submission has its problems, but guess what else has its problems? Our desire to be out from under authority. Autonomy is no better. Authorities who lust for their own autonomy rebel against God by the very act of lording their authority over those in their care. So beware of any authority that submits to no authority and understand in that moment that your Venn diagram of godly authority structures gives you options. But the answer to authority or ungodly use of authority is not to dismiss all authority. Tracking? So, she ends by saying, autonomous authorities are tools of Satan, but those who are submitted themselves are gifts from God for the good of the church. So here's the principle. 
When we hear authority, when we hear submission, like when Paul writes, submit to governing authorities as those instituted by God, there are certain implications on us. But we need to see it in the broad complexity of overlapping spheres of authority rather than direct lines from which we can do nothing but submit to them. So for instance, I'm an elder in the church. I am submitted under an authority structure in our board. If you ever have concerns about myself, even deacons who are now an authority structure in our church, you can email concerns at thecommonsla.com and it goes to our board. There's an elder of another church who is responsible for managing that and they'll investigate and can remove me from eldership. There are also members in our church who are on that board as well, so there's a link between those two. We all need to be submitted under authority. It's for our flourishing. If a husband abuses his wife, the answer is not submit to that abusive husband, but appeal to the authorities of the government and the church in order to see that abuse rectified and corrected and you brought to safety. Okay. Now, this is the gospel conveyed through marriage, but it's, a cost, it's conveyed to all of us. So many of you are sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, this is so irrelevant to me. I might even be called to singleness and it doesn't even matter. As we're about to take the Lord's Supper and we're about to see baptism, those things convey the cosmic gospel to us, that all of us are the church. We are Christ's bride. Husbands, you are a bride. Men, you are a bride. That doesn't mean a feminization. It means a particular posture towards the one who loves you and is leading you. We all receive and follow Jesus. Amen?